Dear Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for who you are, all that you're doing all across this world. But Lord, we thank you for what you're doing here as well, here at MCC. God, it's our desire to join with you. It's our desire to, that we sing, Holy, Holy, are you Lord God Almighty, and that we know who you are and worship you accordingly. And so God, as we dive into your word now, I pray, Lord, that you would challenge us, every single one here. And Lord, you prepare each one of us to respond. Because, Lord, I believe every single one here today will have a response. It's a matter that touches us all. So, Lord, uh, we pray, God, that by your word, you would change us and cause us to be the people you've called us to be. We pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want you to think about this morning, if, if you might, if it's even possible for you, perhaps, uh, to have a stereotype in your mind that you've embraced over your life. A stereotype. You know, a stereotype is something that we hold to be true in our minds about a particular group of people based on our few interactions with just a few people. Okay, so we tend to judge the lot uh, based on a few interactions. Do you have any stereotypes out there? Do you? I know here in America we have our stereotypes. I mean, one American stereotype would be this, that, that all people in England have bad teeth. Right? I mean, we believe the English people have bad teeth. Right? We see it time and again, and yet not all English people have bad teeth. Another stereotype that we have about French people in France, of course, is that they're downright unfriendly. We've heard that over and over again, and yet I've been to France, and they're not the most friendly people in the world, but they're not unfriendly, right? And so we tend to brand them that way. Sometimes we have a stereotype that says, well, you know, all librarians, you know, wear glasses and frown a lot, right? Because when's the last time you've seen a librarian that was dancing in the halls, you know? So we tend to have this in our mind. So do you have a stereotype in your own life? that you hold. A lot of us do. Take, for example, now this particular image here. If you could bring that up, and we should take a look here. Can you bring up uh, Clint Eastwood for us? There you go. And uh, this, of course, is the mighty Clint Eastwood, and this is a bit younger image of him. You have to kind of move ahead maybe 25 years to have him grayed out a little bit like he is now. But some of you would know Clint Eastwood because you follow politics, you would know him as the man who talks to an empty chair. Uh, you might know him that way. Uh, but if you like movies, uh, you would know him perhaps as the director of Million Dollar Baby or American Sniper. But if you're like me, you know, I grew up uh, watching Clint Eastwood and I know him as an actor. And it didn't seem, it didn't really matter what movie he was in. He always seemed to play that role, whether he was a cowboy or a police officer. He always played the same stereotype before us all, and he would always be the strong, silent type, right? That's what we are as men. We're the strong, silent types. This is a stereotype. So you might be in a jam, and if you're in a jam, we will come through for you. We just won't say a lot in the process because we're the strong, silent types. That's a stereotype. And then, of course, then we got this image here. If you could take a look here. And the following image would be one that we hold as well in our culture, that females like to talk. Unlike men who are silent and strong, females like to talk, and sometimes too much. And is that the truth, or is it just a stereotype? Based on my own interaction, I'll tell you what, sometimes you sometimes wonder. I remember my daughter Melody's 16th birthday, this was just three years ago, and she had... 
you know, her friends over, eight or nine friends all gathered around the dining room table. And I walked into the, you know, the meal they were eating to witness, and I'm not exaggerating in the least, mind you, not in the least. I walked in, and what I witnessed was all the girls talking to each other at exactly the same time. Like, how do you do that? I, I couldn't even understand what they were saying with all the different verbiage going on, and yet they seem to be able to talk and hear at the same time, something that males are not able to do. So is this true that females talk more than men? Well, one study that was done some years ago I revealed this. You might have heard these stats before, that females, the average female, uses somewhere around 20,000 words a day. Men, on the other hand, use only about 7,000 words. In fact, if you've gone to a marriage conference at all, uh, you've probably heard somebody up front say, okay, uh, wives, you know, if, if your husband gets home from work and he's not really talking to you all that much, don't take it personally because he's already used up his 7,000 words at work, right? And you're still halfway through your 20,000, and so that's, that's the difference that's there. But then another study done in 2007 revealed on ABC News showed that actually males and females talk about the same. That we both use about 16,000 words a day. And if that's the case, then we're both equally silent and equally chatty. And we're also equally prepared to answer the following question. What do the following phrases all have in common? Are you ready? You've heard some of these before. Probably said some of these before. No, officer. I had no idea how fast I was going. Heard that one? I'm 29. I thought I already sent that email out. It wasn't me. Well, thanks so much. I just love it. I'm fine. Well, you haven't changed a bit. You look great in that dress. I never got the message. I need just five minutes of your time. Well, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Well, let's have lunch sometime. This offer is limited to the first 100 people who call in. I never said that. This is just between you and me. Your money will cheerfully be refunded. I'll be praying for you. It's not you. It's me. Well, that's interesting. I'm going to be honest with you for just a moment. Lord, I give you my all. I understand completely. God just wants you to be happy. Well, I'm sorry. I was, I was busy when you called. Or my personal favorite. I'm from the government, and I'm here to help you. So, what do all these phrases at times, what do they have in common? What do they have in common? Okay, say it out. They're lies, right? They're lies. I mean, I tell you what, we tend to lie as a people. Now, I tell you what, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings because you don't come to church to get your feelings hurt. But just take a look at the person to your right for just a moment. Just look at them for a moment. They are known at times not to tell the truth. They are. Now take a person, look at the person to your left. Look at them. They don't always tell the truth either. In fact, the reality is, friends, we are all known to not tell the truth. 
We are all known to lie. And listen to this. Lying is our attempt to bridge the gap between who we know we are and who we wish we could be. See, we all wish that we were smarter, richer, more successful, more powerful, taller, more educated, and the list goes on and on. And so when we sense that we somehow don't measure up, well then, we lie. We manipulate. We twist. We, we kind of forget to say some of the truth, or we add things to the truth. And this is why study after study reveals this, and pretty astounding things here, friends. Think about this. On your average day, just your average day that you live, you are lied to between 10 and 200 times. Now, if you're single and you're looking for that you know, mate, that prospective person one day you're going to marry, listen to this now. Strangers lie three times within the first 10 minutes of meeting each other. So that person that you're immediately liking, you know, the first 10 minutes, they're lying to you over and over again. You don't really know who they are. We lie more to strangers than we do to co-workers. Extroverts lie more than introverts because they talk a lot more, right? And men, listen to this, men lie eight times more about themselves than they do about other people. Women, on the other hand, lie more to protect other people than they do themselves. And the average married couple, if you consider yourself to be the average married couple, you're not you know, an extra special couple, you're just kind of, you know, run-of-the-mill average couple. Well, the average married couple lies to each other once in every ten interactions. Ouch. And so while we say that we're against lying covertly, we're for it. Because we do it. And this was the case in Christ's time as well. In fact, even the people in those days that were most respected in that society, the religious leaders of that day were known for fudging the truth. And so Jesus, during his Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest sermons, of course, ever delivered, he responded to a problem at hand by answering a question, of course, that raised two questions for us. Why should I tell the truth? And how should I tell the truth? See, Christ desired for us as his followers to live radically, dangerously. He desired that we would be people of integrity even when we're tested. Because the truth is this, and I want you to think about this. The test of integrity comes when being truthful endangers what you want. The test of integrity comes when being truthful endangers what you want. So you're in fear of not getting what you want, and so what do we tend to do? We tend to twist, turn, manipulate, not tell the truth. The test of integrity comes when being truthful endangers what you want. Listen to what Christ said here. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, there's a whole lot going on right there. And so what we're going to do is we're going to unpack this a bit. And what we're going to come to see is that Christ's words are incredibly helpful. Take a look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So Christ's message simply stated is this. If you make a statement to somebody, you tell somebody something, and then you actually promise that, oh, I promise that that's true. I promise that I'm going to do that. Or you give an oath in some way. You are to keep your word no matter what. Why? First lesson, 
Because God sees it all. God sees it all. He sees everything, friends. The Pharisees believed this to the core. They were the religious leaders of that day. And even though they believed that God saw everything that they did and heard everything that they said, they believed he still ranked each event according to the following criteria. What God cared about and what God didn't care about. You see, when it came to a person giving their word, they believed God only cared about statements or promises or oaths that had God's name attached to it. And their belief was rooted in the Old Testament like many things for them. It goes all the way back to a guy by the name of Abraham. Remember him. God saw huge leadership potential in this guy. And so what does he do? He comes to him one day in order to test his integrity. God instructed Abraham to go up to a mountain and sacrifice his son Isaac. And so Abraham actually goes to the mountain. And just before he's ready to plunge this knife right into the chest of his son, God stopped him. And then God said this. And this is where the Pharisees get it from. By myself I have sworn. You ever saw that before in Scripture? God swears by himself. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And so here God is making this huge promise to Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In fact, it's such a huge promise, hard for somebody to take in, that in order to get Abraham to believe it, God swore by himself because there was no one greater than himself to swear by. Well, fast forward in time, the Pharisees looked at this, and they believed that only those statements, promises, or oaths made with God's name attached to it were binding. Therefore, if you actually wanted to make a promise to somebody and you didn't really want to be held to it if your back was against the wall and you wanted to break your word, you'd swear by other things. And they would swear by heaven that this is true. They'd swear by the earth that I'll be there tomorrow. They'd swear by Jerusalem that I'll give you your money on Friday morning. They would swear by the hairs on their head that they could be counted upon. Fast forward, it's like us in our culture saying, cross my heart and hope to die. I swear on my mother's grave that what I'm saying is true. May lightning strike me dead if I'm not telling you the truth right now. And why do we say things like that? Well, for two reasons. First of all, because we're trying to convince the other person that what we're saying is true. And secondly, we know that none of those things are going to happen to us if we don't keep the truth, right? If we break our word. And this is exactly how the Pharisees felt when they made promises that were not made in God's name. If they didn't add God's name to it, well, then their word was not binding and it didn't really matter. And so Jesus steps up to the plate on the mountainside that day, and he wanted to make sure that people knew that that kind of thought, that kind of belief was a falsehood. It was an outright lie. He was basically saying this, friends, that because God sees it all, he cares about it all. Because God sees it all, he cares about it all. William Barclay, theologian, he wrote this. Listen to his words. It's a bit longer of a statement. But take it in, because the reality, friends, based on what Christ said here, if we were to live out what you're about ready to see, we truly would be the lights that we're called to be in this world. He writes, here's a great eternal truth. Life cannot be divided into compartments in some of which God is involved and in others in which he is not involved. There cannot be one kind of language in the church and another kind of language in the shipyard or the factory or the office. You hearing me here? 
There cannot be one kind of standard of conduct in the church and another kind of standard in the business world. The fact is that God does not need to be invited into certain departments of life and kept out of others. He is everywhere, all through life and every activity of life. He hears not only the words which are spoken in his name, he hears all words. And there cannot be any such thing as a form of words which evades bringing God into a transaction. We will regard all promises as sacred if we remember that all promises are made in the presence of God. So think about this for you. What would it look like for you if you truly live your life like God saw everything that you did and heard every word that you stated? What would it look like? How would it impact your relationships at work? Would it change anything? How would it impact your marriage and what you say? I had one guy in my office a couple months ago tell me, you know what, ever since I've been married to my wife, I've been lying to her on a regular basis. It's just what I do. How would it impact your marriage, your relationship with your kids, your friends? How would it impact your postings on Facebook? So many Christians post these different things, and I sit there sometimes and read this. I'm thinking, what in the world are we doing here? Friends, God sees it all. And because God sees it all, he cares about it all. But that's not all. Jesus went on in verse 34. He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now we listen to those words and we think, well, okay, whatever he's saying, you're not offended yet. But the Pharisees, of course, they're listening to this, standing on the hillside there that day, and they are offended big time. Because for them, in their minds, if, if God could swear by himself, it wasn't wrong for them to do the same thing. And now Jesus went even further. He says, don't swear in the name of God. Don't swear in the name of anything. And why did Jesus say this? Well, he was using the logic of the Pharisees against them, you see. He was trying to get them to understand the importance of their words. They'd swear by heaven. Well, when you think about it, heaven is the very place where God dwells. They'd swear by the throne of God. Well, this is the very place that God sits on, right? They'd swear by the earth. The earth was made by God and is ruled by God. They'd swear by Jerusalem. Well, this city, of course, was made from the very stones that God created. They'd swear by the hair on one's head. And the Bible makes it very clear that we are knit together in our mother's womb by whom? God. And so Jesus was not only saying that God sees it all, but now he's saying God owns it all. He owns it all. Everything. Now, from a human perspective, I don't know if you thought about this before, there are actually three kinds of ownership in our lives. Three kinds of ownership. Just take a look at your life. The first type is collective ownership. You know, if you go to a a bank or something, you're, you're trying to apply for something, every once in a while you get a form and they'll ask you, well, do you own or do you rent? And a lot of people will check the box and say, well, I own. Really, do you? Because most Americans would really say, if they're going to be honest, I don't own my house. The bank and I own our house. We're kind of in this together. That's called collective ownership. And then there's selective ownership, which basically says, you know, I own what I've selected to pay cash for, and I'm limited by my selection. So if you go to Kohl's and go shopping, you go there, and you can only choose from what they've given you to choose from. That's called selective ownership. And then there's creative ownership. 
I own what I have created and paid for with my time, sweat, blood, and tears. Examples of that would be an entrepreneurial strategy like the iPhone when it came out some years ago and people lined up to get it. Or a song that somebody writes. A painting that somebody paints. A dance that somebody choreographs. Well, all these forms of, of ownership are great. Only what is birthed through creative ownership feels like it's a part of you. It fosters a true sense of love within you and it affects your emotions at the deepest levels. And this is why when someone criticizes the work of an artist, that person actually feels it to the core because when you criticize their art, you're actually criticizing them since their art is an extension of who they are. And that's exactly how it is with God. When we say that God owns it all, we're saying that He is the designer, creator, and sustainer of everything that we can see and everything that we cannot see. We understand that God owns it all. And this truth, it's rooted throughout Scripture, friends. In fact, I'd like you to speak these words with me, men. If you could speak with me first, then the women will follow and we'll all speak together. These are words coming directly from Scripture. Let's speak them now. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Women, for by him all things were created in heaven. Now everyone together like we really believe this now. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. God owns it all. And so Christ is basically saying, if you're going to make a statement to somebody, a promise, an oath to somebody, don't, don't, don't add other words to your statement. Let your statement just stand for itself. Don't add other words, because if you swear by anything, you're actually swearing by God, since God owns everything. On top of that, when you make a statement to somebody, you find yourself needing to speak more, it's also a tip-off. Someone once said this, that the more someone feels the need to talk, the less you should trust them. Think about that. So is your word your word? Do you feel the need to prove that your word is true? Well, if so, then this is why Jesus said, let what you say be simply yes or no. Yes or no. You see, God sees it all. God owns it all. And now we learn here that God wants your all. He wants you all. He wants you all in or He wants you all out. There is no middle ground. God wants your all. About three years ago, my son Daniel turned 18, and so we said to him, okay, within reason, uh, since it's your 18th birthday, uh, we'll go wherever you want to go in kind of, you know, within driving distance. We're not, you know, going to Hawaii. We're not flying to Europe or something. Okay, within driving distance, where do you want to go? And he chose Chicago. And so we went to Chicago, and we went wherever he wanted to eat. We, he kind of, you know, led us to the whole deal. And then he said, okay, Dad, what we're going to do next is we're going to go to a house show. 
I said, a house show? What in the world is a house show? I've never, I'm thinking, okay, we can like, where they build something? I'm like, what is that about? He said, he rolls his eyes, he says, dad, a house show is when a band tours the country, they got all these, you know, concerts that they're doing. And then every once so often, what they do is they strip down the band, they kind of have an unplugged concert, if you will, and what they do is they go into somebody's living room, and they actually have a house show, and it's usually free. And he wanted to see this band, and so we boarded the train, we went on this train for about a half an hour, then we got off, walked for about another 15 minutes, walked up to this house, and sure enough, there was a concert there. In fact, the band was called, and still is called, they're still recording today, from Indian Lakes, I'd never heard of them from Indian Lakes. And so we go into this house. And so now they start their concert. And I'm in the front row of this house show. Okay? There's only like 30, 40 people. But I'm in the front row. And now I'm listening to these songs for the first time. Completely blown away by the band. Completely blown away by their singing, their songs. I mean, it was unbelievable. And as I was listening to these songs for the first time, I heard like words peppered in there like God and church. What's up with these people? They're from California out that way. And so during one of the breaks, I walked up and I talked to the lead singer. And I said, man, you guys are amazing. They really, they were. And I said, you know what? I just have a question. And listening to your songs and everything, do you have a faith that you come from? Just, just, just wondering. And he looked at me and he smiled. And he says, okay, are you basically asking me if I'm a Christian because you're a Christian? I said, yeah, you kind of called me out. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. And he said, okay, here's the deal. Because I grew up in church. I went every single Sunday. Sang all the songs, listened to all the sermons. I'll tell you what, read the Bible. I mean, I was in there, I'll tell you what. And, and the whole deal. But here's what I came to learn. As I listened to the pastor speak, and I listened to them tell about Jesus, Jesus talked about people following him. And, and somebody who follows Christ means you actually got to do what he's saying. And as I began to understand that, I began to look around me at all the people that were in the church calling themselves Christians. And I realized, knowing what some of them were doing, that they were calling themselves Christians, but they weren't really following him because they weren't really doing what he said. And so, if you want to know if I'm a Christian, he says, he says, I'm not. I'm not. I love God. I follow Jesus. I still read the Bible. But in order to be a Christian, you've got to be all in. And since I'm not all in, I'm not a Christian. I thought, wow. Somebody who really gets it. Unbelievable. And it raises the question, am I all in? Are you all in? See, Jesus calls us to be all in with our lives, with, with our thoughts, with our actions, and with our words. Are you all in? Well, another person that's not quite as popular, of course, as Jesus Christ is Paul Harvey. He actually passed away some years ago, but he tells this story, true story, about these four high school boys. And they're on their way to school, and, and they arrive to school late. Like, they missed almost the entire first hour. And in the first hour class, they were supposed to take a test. It was the major test for that semester. They missed it. And so now they walk up to the teacher and they say, well, I'm so sorry, we, we, we're late, you know. And the teacher wanted to know why. And, and they said, well, we're all riding in the same car together. And you know what, we got a flat tire on the way to school. So we had to change the tire. And by the time we did all that, of course, now we're late. And now we missed everything. We're really, really sorry. And the teacher said, tell you what, you won't even have to take the test that everyone else took. 
No, you won't have to take that test at all. In fact, what he did is he put them in the four corners of the room, put them at a desk, gave them a sheet of paper and a pencil. He says, all I'm going to do is ask you one simple question. And if you pass this one really simple question, I'm going to give you an A for the test. But if you miss this really simple question, you're going to fail. So they sat him down. He says, here's the question. Which tire was flat? They failed. See, we get in trouble when we're not yes or no people. Are you a yes or no person? Is your word your word? We get the short end of the stick when we're not that, friends. Because eventually we get called out. Eventually it rises to the surface. See, we have a lot in common with these four guys from high school. We do if if we don't want to admit it. In fact, in one book that came out, The Day America Told the Truth, interesting title, But they went out and did this research project, okay? And in this book, it was revealed that 91% of people they talked to fully admitted that they lie on a regular basis. 91%. Are we part of that 91%? I have to ask, am I part of that 91%? Are you part of that 91%? Because Jesus knew our tendencies. And this is why he he comes on that day and he stands on that hillside because he knows our tendency to exaggerate, to mislead, to manipulate, to deceive, and not follow through. And so Jesus kept it really, really simple because he knew our tendency to exaggerate things. Our yes should be yes and our no should be no. See, friends, the test of integrity comes with being truthful and dangerous what you want. So let me ask you, do you ever feel in danger not getting what you want? And so you take the safe road paved with bricks of deception? See, many people feel the need to explain themselves or sometimes stretch the truth in order to achieve their objectives. And to this, Jesus said, anything more than this, anything more than a yes or no lifestyle comes directly from evil, from the devil himself. Someone once said this, that lies serve as the lubricant to keep the gears of society turning. And this very lubricant comes from Satan, the father of lies. So anyone who tries to play the middle, subtract the truth, add to the truth, twist the truth, is modeling their behavior directly after him. So on this holiday weekend, you're going to have quite a bit of time. Time to hang with family, time to hang with friends you don't normally get to see, a whole lot of conversation going on. And so in the midst of this, I just want to ask you, does Satan have a foothold in your life when it comes to the use of your words. Because on the surface, it seems like there's so many benefits to not telling the truth, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not going to hurt somebody's feelings. I'll, I'll be accepted if I don't tell the truth. I'll get out of something I don't want to do if I don't tell the truth. And these are all selfish motives, Jesus says, that comes from the pit of hell, the enemy. And so let me just give you just a few moments here. Let's just talk about what verbal integrity will do for you, according to the Bible. Verbal integrity, being a yes or no person. First of all, verbal integrity blesses you. It blesses you. Proverbs 27 says, The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. So not only will you be blessed for living with verbal integrity, but your children will be blessed as well. Why? Because they saw you in action. Because they knew when they're looking at you as a parent that when you said something, it was the truth. And you modeled that behavior for them. So not only will you be blessed, but they will be blessed because they will replicate what they've seen. 
Verbal integrity, secondly, protects you. Psalm 25, verse 21 says, May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. See, it protects you because when you have verbal integrity in your life, you don't have to worry that someone's going to find out that you didn't quite tell the full truth or covered up something. You can live and you can sleep well knowing that you don't have to worry about all that. So verbal integrity blesses you. It protects you. And thirdly, verbal integrity guides you. Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. So when you live with verbal integrity, it will guide you into all truth, friends. So the question then for all of us is this. How do I become a yes or no person? How do I become a yes or no person? Two steps, really. Think about this. First of all, identify your area of weakness. Be honest with yourself. Identify your area of weakness. Where do you lack verbal integrity the most? Is it with God? Do you constantly kind of tell him you're going to do something and you don't? Do you lack it with him? Do you lack it with God's family, the church? You've been saying you're going to dive in and help or serve for a long time, but it still hasn't happened. Do you lack it there? Or was it, is it with your own family? Do you, do, you, do you lie to your spouse? You don't let them know what's really going on. How about your kids? Do you follow through in what you're saying? Is it with others in your life? People at work, people on the streets. Identify your area of weakness. Where do you lack verbal integrity the most? And then, once you call that out in your life, secondly, confess your faults. Christ's brother said this, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You call it out and you go to another Christian friend and you say, I don't know why, but I keep lying to my spouse. I keep not following through in my words when it comes to my kids. I'm lying to my boss. I mean, call it out in your life. Go to somebody that you love and you trust, another Christian. Say, will you pray for me and help hold me accountable here? Because the outcome will be that you will be healed and you'll begin living with verbal integrity. So let me ask you, do you need to be healed of using false words in order to get what you want? Because here's what God wants. He wants your words to be reliable. He wants your life be blessed and how can you have a blessed life by being all in with your life with your thoughts with your actions and with your words are you all in see jesus set the standard for us he was all in in fact on a particular night the night coming before he knew he was he was going to face torture and ridicule, he prayed, he bowed on his knees to his father and said, Father, is there any other way but this? Man, is there any other way than this? And his father responded, he says, okay, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was all in for me. He was all in for you. As a result, he suffered on the cross. He died, he rose, so that we would have the opportunity to be all in. And so as those who are serving us today come forward, those who are passing the bread and the wine, if you can come forward right now, here's what I'd like you to do. When those elements are passed to you and you're holding the bread in your hand and the wine in your hand, these elements represent the fact that Jesus was all in. I'll tell you what, take that opportunity to say to God, you know what? I don't know that I'm all in. But that's true of you. Here's where I'm lacking. My words aren't good. My actions aren't good. And ask forgiveness in this moment that you're in right now. 
Say, Jesus, I thank you for being all in, but I haven't been. Wash me, cleanse me. Give me the strength I need. Empower me by your spirit so that I can be a Christian who is all in. And once all the elements have been passed and you've been holding these in your hands for a while and everyone's been served, then we'll partake together. But for now, have your time with God, will you? On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread broken. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Because let's take it, let's eat it. Let's remember it. He took the cup. He poured it out and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. Friends, let's drink it. Let's remember him. Jesus, today we thank you for being all in. That you went the distance for us. You didn't hold back. You gave it all. You laid it on the line. We thank you. Now, as we remember you here in this moment, Jesus, we ask that just as you were all in, Lord, that we would follow you in that same way. That we wouldn't just wear a label, but not really live it. Help us, Lord, to be followers of you who are all in. And Lord, may the last line of that song we just heard be our refrain. May it, may it be, may it speak truth of our lives. That in all we do, we'd honor you. Jesus, we thank you for being our king. We thank you that because of what you've done, we can know your forgiveness. So hear our praises now, Lord. Will everyone stand? Let's sing it together. I'm forgiven because you.